0: Well, uh, okay, so the chaos beneath us, I want to first start off by saying this, that my wife and I, Jordan, we are not a fan of the beach. <laughs> yeah, we feel like we like the idea of the beach. It looks great. It's pretty in pictures, but we just consider it far too sandy and um, dirty and smelly. Also, we had in our early, we've been married for Eight years now, we had uh, a, bit of a, a bit of an incident when it comes to the beach uh, early on in our marriage. The way that that works is this. When we got married, we went for our honeymoon. We went on a Disney land and sea vacation. So we had like three nights in Disney World in one of the resorts. And then we had three nights on a Disney cruise. So it's pretty cool. And we uh, went on the cruise. We went to a place that's called Castaway Key. It's uh, Disney's own island. They own their own islands, and the only way you get to it is on like these Disney uh, cruises. And so, one thing that's amazing about that, and some of these other cruises, is the water is just so shockingly clear, and you can see down just an unbelievable distance. It's almost scary. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of um, uh, seeing just like super clear. Water, but it's crazy. So, we, so, me and Jordan, we're just being sweet because we're newlyweds. So, we're walking in the water. I think we're waiting, you know, maybe to our waist and we're holding hands and we're just talking. And in this incredibly clear water, right in front of us, we encounter, I don't know, a couple feet in front of us, um, a stingray. So, I do what most men would do, and I just screamed <laughs> and I jumped back. Um, and, but to hear my wife tell the story, she would, she would, uh, and she still maintains to this day that I pushed her into the stingray <laughs> as a blood sacrifice. Take her. Uh, I, I, I just know that I was on the beach as soon as possible. Um, but it was just, it was just instinct guys. Uh, so, so we, we don't love the beach. I don't know if it has anything to do with that, but I just I just like um, other things besides the beach more. But with that said, I am fascinated, and I wonder if anyone in here is fascinated with um, deep water and the sea. There's just something fascinating, and um, you know, if you've ever done like snorkeling where you can just see like tons of feet down, you you're almost like scared of heights even though you're just swimming because there's so much underneath you and you can see so much activity down there. Um, and I think that there's something powerful and romantic and terrifying about the sea. There's just something that it's just, it's just powerful. I just feel like the sea is not to be uh, trifled with. Well, yesterday I watched this movie. I think, I, I think it's the second time I've seen it. It's a movie called All is Lost. It came out in 2013. Um, has anyone ever seen this movie? Has anyone ever heard of this movie? I know. Okay, well, uh, I, yeah, so I've been really, I think as a pastor, I think God's just been doing something in me personally these last couple of years, um, because I've lived a very blessed life. Like, so much about my life is so great, and so, I mean, we've got great families. My wife and I were just so blessed, but I, I really think that God has been kind of leading me into this phase of just becoming aware of other people's struggles, um, and just knowing that not everyone's experience in life is is as pretty as mine has been. And I have a lot of friends in this world that in the last three years have gone through unbelievable suffering and pain that in, in so many ways is really foreign uh, to a guy like me. And so as I was, I was watching this movie, All is Lost, I kind of started to see it almost like a metaphor um, for, uh, for life and the way that a lot of people experience life. If you don't know, the movie stars Robert Redford. Uh, he's the only actor in the entire movie. So if you see the credits, it's just one name, Robert Redford. It doesn't even give him a name, it's nothing. Uh, it just, and, uh, he's, but he's 77 years old when they recorded this movie, he's now I think 80. So he's a much more weathered Robert Redford than I think probably most of us are used to seeing. Not much of a plot, but the idea is there's just this man and he's trying to survive um, on the sea. Uh, it, it works out because he's, he's on this yacht, he's by himself, he's on this yacht and he's sleeping and the yacht ends up running into like this cargo container that's just floating there in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the sea. And so it springs a big hole in his boat and so water begins flooding into his boat. And so he's trying to figure out what to do and so he's trying to patch the hole uh, and whatever he can do, but it's... Um, It doesn't work because water just continues to rise and rise and rise onto his yacht. And so there's some of these scenes that are just chilling where he's by himself in like the middle of the ocean and he's trying to sleep on this bed when there's water that's continuing to rise um, all around him. And so he as tries as he might, it doesn't work. And so his boat continues to sink and sink and sink and sink uh, to where it ultimately um, goes all the way under the water. And so he has no choice but to just jump on his own emergency life raft. But some storms hit, and isn't it so perfect, the, the sounds? Uh, some storms hit, and even his raft begins to take on water. So he, he's just there in the middle of the ocean by himself on this raft, and he has this tiny little rag, and he keeps filling the rag with water and squeezing it out, and wringing it out, filling it up with water, wringing it out, filling it, and he'll just do this um, for hours. Uh, there's this time when he's trying, he has this like emergency kit and it has a little fishing pole, which is just basically a stick and fishing line and this tiny fly on it. So he unravels it and throws it into the water and he's just hoping that he's going to catch some food to survive, you know, another couple days. Um, eventually a fish bites on, on the fly and so he's wringing it in uh, just with his bare hands on the line like this. And once it almost gets onto, um, into the raft, there's a big shark comes and grabs the fish. Uh, right before it comes on to the boat. Um, There's another scene where he's trying to, he's trying to get water. He needs clean drinking water. So he's made this little contraption with like a a clear plastic tarp weighted in the center. So water would evaporate and come to the middle and then drip into this little cup. So like after a day, you know, he'd have like this tiny little sip of water. Um, But then the storm comes and totally ruins all of his brilliant contraptions. Um, It's like It's heart-wrenching in, in so many different ways. Uh, there's uh, there's this t- this scenes where he's trying to like chart his course. He has a map, and so he has this weird little thing that you look through and little dials where he's able, able to tell where he is. Um, and so it's amazing that he goes through unbelievable struggle to just survive a day. And then bu- come evening, he kind of marks how far he's gone, and he's gone just such like, a tiny distance that's so um, sad in so many different ways. And then there's one time where this big boat is, is coming through, like this big cargo liner. And so he thinks he's safe, so he has these two flares. So he shoots his two flares, psh, psh. nobody nobody sees him, the boat just keeps going, And so he's there, and this big boat's passing, and he's trying to scream, but he has no voice. So it's just this hoarse um, you know, thing, he's just trying to scream to the people, and this boat just continues to pass by. Um, I don't think I'm selling this movie good, am I? Anybody want to watch this? Uh, But really, I I was kind of thinking of the movie, and just because I was in this space, and it's kind of where I've been lately, I was just starting to see the movie kind of as maybe a, a metaphor for just feeling adrift and feeling maybe like alone in the middle of a storm. Uh, when it comes to people's lives, you know, just not being sure when the storm is going to swallow you up. I don't know if you know this, if you have a really great blessed life, but there's a lot of people that live lives today and they're not sure if they're going to make it home. And they don't know if the situation they're in right now is going to be um, the end of them. There's this one scene where you see, you see his tiny little raft, and Robert Redford is here, and the, the camera just continues to pan up and up and up, so the boat just keeps getting smaller and smaller as it raises high up into the sky to where eventually you just see this tiny little raft on this water and this huge sea of nothingness. And it was just, it was just um, both beautiful and scary how small this man was um, in comparison to the whole sea. And then later on, it it does the same shot, but it does it kind of differently. It does it from underneath where you can see the raft, but it's underneath. And so then the the camera just continues to drop farther and farther into the water. And so by the time you you see the raft, it's just tiny, but instead of there just being a sea of nothingness, there's a sea of so many different creatures and sharks and animals and things happening under uh, that he has no idea about as he just sits on the surface um, of the water. It kind of reminds me of a line from the book of Job. He says this at the end of the book of Job. Job says this, Oh, how small I am in light of all these things that are created. And I don't know if you have read the Old Testament enough to know, but in the Old Testament, there's this huge mythology of the sea. And it's, see, in in the Old Testament, the sea is not just about, it's not just about water, but it's kind of symbolic about uh, evil and chaos, the sea is symbolic of all that is wild and untamed and untamable. You could, you could say it like this. The sea is where the monsters live uh, in the Old Testament. A few examples in the book of Daniel. Daniel has this uh, vision, this great vision of these terrible monsters coming out of the sea. And then if you fast forward to the book of Revelation, you can see when Jesus returns and he brings the new heaven and the, no, the new earth, that it says this, that there's no longer any sea which sounds like a bummer for a lot of people if you're into the ocean. I don't think it's talking about there not being any actual sea. It's symbolic of chaos um, and evil. And lastly, probably most prominently, is the book of Job. Job talks a lot about not only the chaotic sea, but also about the sea monster. Um, In fact, the book of Job gives the sea monster a name, and the name is this Leviathan got a picture or an a, 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 um, artistic, I don't know, painting of um, Leviathan. This is Gustave Dori, uh, painted in 1865. You can see this is the Leviathan, and really what it is, it's like, a, it's like very similar to what we would kind of consider a Loch Ness monster. Um, and so some people would say when they understand the Leviathan in the Old Testament, they would say that it's always just Satan and evil. And certainly, there seems like in some parts of the Bible that that there's like God and He's He's at war with the Leviathan. But there's other parts of the Bible where it, especially like Job and Psalms, where it equates uh, the Leviathan to God's pet, or maybe you could say like this, God's plaything. The Scripture, Psalm 104, verse 24. The psalmist says this: "O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea." great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. So it begs the question, what kind of God is this? What, what kind of God would um, treat this ferocious Leviathan as his plaything? I think you can learn a lot about somebody by what kind of pet they have. Uh, my wife and I, we're small dog people. We like small dogs. Uh, We have two dogs. They both weigh in the sixes, six pounds. Uh, And if you don't know me well, that might come as a surprise to you because I'm rather large. But if you know me well, then that's probably not a surprise to you at all because I'm a big softie. Uh, But you can learn a lot about people by what kind of animals they keep. I don't know if you've ever met a lady who has just this very particular set of glasses and a very particular bun on her head. And you just think, this lady owns a lot of cats. No? Well, okay. Um, I, I, just, I, just, I just have the distinct feeling, I don't know, but I feel like certain types of people, you can just tell that they love cats. Uh, it's not, I love cats too, but I think that you can learn a lot about people by what kind of pets uh, they have. And so God is depicted in the book of Job as this ferocious, um, ferocious God who has a ferocious pet. And really what it kind of speaks about is it speaks about just the wildness of God. That, that God would come and he would be comfortable uh, with what the Bible calls a chaos monster. And so uh, the book of Job is probably one of, if not my favorite book in the Old Testament, as weird well as that sounds. I know the average Christian loves just pass over Job uh, because it's so uh, strange. But I would say this, I believe the book of Job has almost without a doubt the best poetry in the entire Bible. Almost the entire book is poetry, Um, and I think you you can definitely tell when you read it. It's the Bible's most primitive book, and I mean that as a compliment. Because when you read it, it just feels old. Most theologians would believe that it's the oldest book as far as which book was written first, Uh, and it just it just feels old. And it kind of has like this primal thing. And so it's not surprising that he would come and he would be talking about sea monsters. And when he's talking about sea monsters, he's kind of like coming to fathom. All of these things that are primally human—he's kind of trying to understand evil and suffering and pain—and really, you you don't need to be a Christian to understand the Book of Job. in fact, in fact, it's almost not connected at all with the rest of the Bible. There's no mention of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There's no mention of the Israelites. There's no mention of the Exodus. There's no mention of all of these things that really link the canon of Scripture uh, together. It's almost like it's in uh, its own world. But it's just this man who's trying to understand good and evil and God and probably most of all, pain. Um, it's interesting that the book of Job is the first explicit reference that we have to Satan. Um, but uh, it's, not, it's not a surname. It's not like, hi, my name is Satan. Like that's his actual name. It would be translated more literally, it's a title. It would be the Satan, which just means the accuser. So it's, it's not saying his name is Satan. It's saying the accuser uh, comes. So Karl Marx, and probably some of you know about Karl Marx, But he described religion as opiate for the masses. And what he means by that is is that religion is a drug that religious people take in order to deal with the harsh realities of the real world. Um, So we don't know what religion Karl Marx was talking about, but certainly he wasn't talking about the religion of Job. (laughs) Because Job was a good man and he suffers. In fact, he's the most righteous man and he suffers uh, the most. By the way, I don't have time to get into like the theology of Job this morning, but if you want to get into the theology of Job, I'm speaking here this coming Tuesday and we are diving deep into the book of Job. So love to have you guys there. If you're curious, if you avoid the book of Job, just come this Tuesday. We'll, um, we'll figure it out together. Uh, so, so here's the basic story, though, without most of the, with the theology pulled out. Here's the basic story of the book of Job. There's this rich guy. His name is Job, and he's from this land that's the land of Uz. We have no idea what that means. <laughs> we don't know where that is. Um, there's just a place called Uz. And so he has this large family. He has these huge uh, flocks. And the Bible's really quick to say that this man was blameless and upright in everything that he did. In fact, it says it like this, that he's, he was always careful to avoid doing evil. Well, one day, the, the Satan, the accuser, he comes uh, to heaven, and he's having a conversation with God, and God says this, hey, have you seen my servant Job? He's the best. He's the greatest. And Satan says, well, is he really, or is it just because you've blessed him so much? Because I bet is that, my bet is this if you would curse him, he would curse you. And so, so God basically says, All right, fine, do whatever you would like to do to my man Job, just don't kill him. Uh, and so this is the challenge from Satan. And so this is when it all hits the fan with Job. This is when it all goes bad. His livestock, his servants, his 10 children, he's got seven boys, he's got three girls, uh, they're all dead. Uh, the only thing that remains in Job's life is his wife. And if you're familiar with the story, that is not a blessing. Why her, God? So he's mourning. He's in pain. And so, um, in fact, we know he, it says that he rips his clothes and he shaves his head, which is old uh, Israelite language for being in a season of mourning. Uh, but he still blesses God in his prayers. So Satan, not to be deterred, he goes back to God to try again. He says, let me try again. And God says, okay, fine, you know, do what you will, but just don't kill him. Uh, so then Job, Job develops these horrible skin sores. In fact, the Bible describes it like this, that he's a man who's clothed in worms and scabs. Uh, and so his wife, his wonderful wife, comes to him and says this, why don't you do us all a favor and curse God and commit suicide? Um, it's a lovely lady. <laughs> uh, Job refuses, though. He, re- he still refuses. And at this point, this is when the story kind of heats up. His three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they come and they, they, to comfort their friend, they sit in silence with him for seven days. It's called sitting Shiva. It's a Jewish culture, even uh, happens today, where, where um, people will come and sit in silence. For seven days and they won't speak until they're spoken to. Well, Job, after seven days, he finally speaks to his friends. And then what you see in the majority of the remainder of the book is these conversations with each of these four men, and they're all doing their best to explain why this happened uh, to Job. And so chapters four through 37 are essentially filled with some of the most insane, ridiculous, ignorant theology that you will find anywhere on the planet. Um, and the book ends, I'll explain that, but the book ends with God coming and speaking and restoring uh, all the things uh, that were broken. And again, more. He, he gets more livestock. He gets more servants. He gets more children. So no harm, no foul, uh, unless you're one of the kids, I suppose. Uh, again, I don't have the time to get into the theology of the book, uh, again, come Tuesday. But the key is this. You have to understand when it comes to the book of Job that the The book of Job is comprised completely of wrong ways to understand suffering, and it's exactly the point. Job is trying to teach you what not to do when it comes to your suffering or the suffering of other people. Um, So I I identify with Job in a lot of ways. Um, Just the feeling of life being wild and chaotic and scary. I think anyone that's really suffered can understand the story of Job. Because it speaks the language of suffering. In fact, if you've ever suffered and you don't know how to put words to your pain, read the book of Job and it will teach you. (laughs) Because it's unbelievably agonizing. I read the book twice um, these past few days and it's painful. It's agonizing this man's um, unbelievable grief. But the book really gets interesting when his friends come to comfort him. Uh, But what they do is they really just end up saying all kinds of awful things. Uh, about why it happens and i 'm actually sympathetic of his friends as well, just because I can remember all the times that I come to somebody who has suffered loss and i 'm the one giving like helpful tips you know what i mean like i 've never been through it i 'm not experiencing it, but i 'm the one who 's going to come in and tell you like what you should do and maybe why uh, it happened. I think these guys had pure motives. I think they were trying to do the right thing they come they sit shiva, they sit in silence, um, and then they try to offer helpful words, but as it is often the case, their helpful explanations just end up making the pain a thousand times worse. Um, And I think where these friends really go wrong is not in the explanations they give, but it's just in being in this posture of trying to offer explanations at all. So that's where they went wrong. If you think about the life of Jesus, uh, when his friend Lazarus dies, he comes to the family um, and offers zero explanations, but he just sits and he weeps with those who are weeping. And what's really interesting about the story is the next day, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So I, don't, almost, I almost don't understand the tears. You know, I, like, I feel like I would be giggling a little bit if I was Jesus. But there is something to the, to the effect of Jesus just coming in and entering into their pain with zero answers. Um, compassion, the word compassion, compatio, it just means this, to suffer with And Jesus was the master of it, just coming in, offering zero explanations, and entering into someone else's pain. And I guess really what I want to say this morning is I'm convinced that the reason people try to offer explanations to other people's pain is that if we know why other people suffer, it reassures us that it's not going to happen to us. Uh, Job's life goes and it spins into chaos, but his, his friends, I mean, their lives are nice and ordered and neat and clean, and really, I think they're coming and offering explanations, thinking that they're going to help Job sleep better, but really what I think they're doing is they're offering explanations to help themselves sleep better, because if we give meaning to other people's suffering, if we can understand why, then our life can continue to remain ordered and neat and clean. It's horrible that it happened to them. Thank God it's never going to happen to me. You're going to actually see this, people assigning reasons to this anytime there's some sort of natural disaster. Some hurricane uh, strikes and some knucklehead evangelical comes on a TBN and says, I can tell you why that hurricane hit. It's the prostitutes, it's the abortionists. Um, n- no, notice none of them are ever saying, you know, I know it was a sin and it was my sin. I'm pretty sure this one was me. My bad. No, Nobody's ever saying, it's always their sin, right? It's always the sin of the other, um, never our own. Of course, breaks down pretty quick when you think about like Las Vegas, Nevada, literally sin city, not likely to get hit by a hurricane anytime soon. Uh, nobody ever gets on it uh, on, onto TBN and saying, I'm pretty sure the reason that hurricane strike is because of changes in barometric pressure, which is of course uh, the truth. But people love assigning... Um, reasons why bad things happen and I think the reason is simply this it makes us feel better about our own clean neat and ordered life there's something comforting about knowing why bad happens because it insulates us from how chaotic we know the world really is I think if you're being honest and you're thinking about the world not right now in church when everything is so pretty and everything makes sense in here think about Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday when things make a little bit less sense I think we all know that the world has this element of chaos, that there's things that happen that that surprise us and befuddle us and um, disturb us. And so I think if we feel like if we, can, if we can always be people who are saying, that's why that's happening, that's why that's happening, that's why that's happening, it just makes us feel better about our own lives because we feel like we're in control. Um, I think one of the things that's so horrible about the story of Job is that his friends come. And they make him feel like he's the monster. They make him feel like the reason that this happened was because you did something wrong or you didn't do something right. If you brought the story into 2017, evangelical Christianity would be this, you didn't have enough faith. That's his friend's helpful advice, you didn't pray right. And and so it's just, it's crazy um, because again, the reason they're doing that is because he threatens their sense of order. And you can actually see this is that the more uh, Job talks as the book progresses, you can see how monstrous he feels. It just begins to grow and grow and grow. I'm going to finally read some scripture for you. Uh, Job chapter seven. This is Job talking to God. He says this, and I'm just, it's a lot of scripture, but I'm just hoping you can enter into the pain of it. Okay, Uh, Job 7, Therefore I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Listen to this. Am I the sea or the sea monster that you set guard over me? He's saying this. Am I the monster that you oppose? Um, Verse 17, He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. It is all the same. That is why I say He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. Does it please you to oppress me, to despise the work of your hands while you smile on the plans of the wicked? If I hold my head high, you stalk me like a lion and again display your awesome power against me. You bring new witnesses against me and increase your anger toward me. Your forces come against me wave upon wave. Listen to this, verse 20. Are not my few days almost over? Turn away from me so I can have a moment's joy. He throws me into the mud and I am reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly with the might of your hand. You attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. So this kind of pain goes on for 38 brutal chapters, page after page after page after page of suffering. Um, Job talks, his friends talk, this other guy, Elihu, he shows up, he talks, uh, and then finally everyone shuts up. Um, And God is finally able to talk. And isn't that the way that it seems to work, that God would maybe come and say something if we would all shut our mouths for just a couple minutes? Um, God kind of finally comes and talks near the end of the book. And once God finally comes and speaks, it's incredible. The thing that he says, um, I love his opener in chapter 38. This, so again, we have multiple voices going on in this book. This one is God responding to Job. Okay, and this is what he says, two who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He's saying this, who is darkening the sky with nonsense words that they don't understand? And he says this, now gird your loins up like a man. He says, put on your big boy underwear. And he says, I will ask you and you will instruct me. He's saying, if you're so brilliant, then answer these questions. He says this, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Who determined its measurements? Surely you know have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Uh, So God comes down and basically what he does is he points out the massive ignorance that has been happening for 38 chapters. And then he finally, he gets tender and I just think it's so beautiful. God sits down Job uh, and he begins to explain to him the wildness of things. And he like the chaos of things, which is so different than his friends, because his friends are offering explanations, and God comes and offers a vision of the world in its terrible freedom. And how just so much is happening um, that's wild. He gives this amazing picture of freedom and uh, um, wildness in creation. Check this out, 39-1. Uh, this is God again talking. And pay attention to the word "wild." Do you, know, uh, do you know when the wild goats give birth? Have you watched as deer are born into the wild? Who gives the wild donkey its freedom? Who untied its ropes? I have placed it in the wilderness. Its home is the wasteland. Will the wild ox consent to being tamed? tamed? Will it spend a night in your stall? The answer is no. Can you hitch a wild ox to a plow? Will it plow a field for you? Have you given the horse its strength or clothed its neck with a flowing mane? Uh, Is it your wisdom that makes the hawk soar and spread its wings towards the south? Is it your command that the eagle rises to the heights to make its nest? So he's talking about this amazing wildness, almost almost disorder, but just this wildness um, of the universe, which is unlike his friends. His friends come and say this, hey, it's just cause and effect, man. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Moses said so. Well, the book of Job comes along and says, yeah, I wouldn't be so sure about that. In fact, what we see is the most righteous man suffering um, the most. And so God comes and he gives this picture, which is just so amazing. He comes and he gives this picture of the Leviathan, the terrifying sea monster. And when God is done talking about the Leviathan, he's done talking. Like this is all that he says. Uh, Job 41, verse 1, again, he's talking to Job. He says this, Can you pull a Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down its tongue with a rope? If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. Its snorting throws out flashes of light. Its eyes are like the rays of dawn. Flames stream out of its mouth. Sparks of fire shoot out. Smoke pours out of its nostrils as from a boiling pot over burning reeds. Nothing on earth is its equal, a creature without fear. It looks down on all that are haughty. It is the king over all that is proud." Which is a very unusual response, wouldn't you think? I mean, I I just feel like there would be a part of me, you know, that would think like, God, you're not answering the question. I'm trying to understand why my kids were killed. And you're talking about a stupid um, sea monster. Uh, But what God is doing in this poetry, it's really beautiful, but what he's doing is he's presenting this very primitive man with the idea of evil and chaos. And this is not how the boys thought it was going down. See, the boys thought it was either God was doing something, people still think that today, or they were thinking that it was Job's fault, and people still think that today. And God comes and says, Yeah, it's neither of those. And then he comes and explains this ferocious, chaotic reality of the world. And really, the point that God is making uh, in this monologue poem is this that no one is able to stop the monsters but him. That's the idea. He asks these rhetorical questions. Can you pull in the Leviathan with a fishhook? No. Can you pierce the Leviathan with a sword? No. Can you capture the sea monster? No. Can you tame the chaos? No. Can you remove the ambiguity? No. Can you wrestle down the mystery? No. But I can. So God is saying. And so it's just a mistake for us to think that we can always make sense of everything. I'm just so, um, I want to be so respectful of people in the way that they understand the world. And and I, I really am just having a really strong sense as I continue in my Christian walk and being a pastor that I think people end up giving the wrong message of Jesus to the world, and then we frustrate them and they leave. We're fine to play around. And when it doesn't work out, they feel betrayed and they leave. And I can say that there are millions of people my age that have been frustrated by careless theology that makes it seem like there's nothing bad ever going to happen um, in the world. I just think, man, you need to read your Bible more, man. Because God had never said that there would never be chaos. But he's just always said that he would be with us in the chaos. And if we let him, he will help us. Anyone here ever read the book um, Moby Dick? Maybe when you were a, uh, a little kid. Um, I think I read it, maybe I was 18, I'm not sure. Something. Uh, but the Moby Dick is basically, it's about a man by the name of Ahab. And Ahab is on a quest to kill a ferocious whale. And the ferocious whale is Moby Dick. Moby Dick. And the author is constantly quoting from the book of Job. When he's describing Moby Dick, he's just quoting straight lines of the book of Job. When, when the book of Job is describing the Leviathan, he uses those to describe uh, Moby Dick. Spoiler, I can spoil that movie right? or that book. It was written in the 1850s. So if you haven't read it by now, guys, I don't think it's going to happen. Um, but Ahab dies. And uh, really what happens, I think, he, he dies trying to capture um, that which man cannot capture. That's the idea. And he's trying to kill that which man cannot kill. That's the idea um, of Moby Dick. And, and so it's just this crazy um, idea, and you can see it in the book of Job, that it's, there's this horrible thing, this terrifying thing, which is the chaos and the mystery of the world. But then the book of Job paints this ferocious creature as like a plaything to God. And to me, the thing that means a lot to me in the book of Job is this, is that no matter how wild I I feel like life can become, I just know that God's not intimidated by it. And I'm not going to pretend in my own life that I understand everything. I don't. Um, But I do know that he's not intimidated by the chaos. And when I see things that are just like so mysterious and devastating to me, it wasn't so long ago that we did a funeral for, like, these three precious kids, and it, like, ripped my heart out. And I'm not going to comfort myself by trying to say, oh, 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 the world is chaotic and painful. But I just know that he's not scared um, by the pain. Uh, and and we just need to always be people who are honest enough to come and say, like, we don't have all the answers. We don't understand why the wildness. I mean, there's why, like, you hear, you hear stories of the world and it just makes your skin crawl. That's just the way that this dark world works. And I don't want to give people a, an idea that that's not the way it is. When I came out of Bible college, I was just so positive. I spent two years, just nothing but the book and not nearly enough people. You can just read the book and you can be like, well, it seems pretty straightforward. I mean, you know, you know, just pray this prayer and then they get better. That's cool, right? And then you, you live the real world and it's, there's more ambiguity to the Christian faith than most of us would like to admit. Um, but r- the real world came and taught me this, that the world is chaotic, you know, and I'm so relieved that the Bible has the honesty of something like the book of Job to say this. The world is hard and frustrating and scary and crazy, but you just know that you're not alone in it. And you don't have to pretend um, because God doesn't say there's never going to be any chaos, but he says he's with us in the chaos. He's not scared by it. Um, He's not befuddled by it. Joyce Meyer, she has this um, illustration she, she uses. She said, one time there were these two Uh, artists. And they were uh, tasked with the job of painting a painting um, of peace, whatever that means to them, peace, whatever that means. So the first person uh, painted this picture of just this super still water, you know, backed up by these two mountains. And it was just serene and peaceful and beautiful. And the other artist painted this picture of this ferocious waterfall. And they're And then there's this branch that comes out of the waterfall, and on that branch is this tiny little bird's nest, and in this bird's nest is a tiny little bird. And um, to them, that was peace. It's not that there would never be bumpy waters, but there would be um, this sense of you being okay despite the bumpy waters. There's no such thing as a life without opposition. Um, And here's what I really think is amazing. This is what I've learned in my own life and even talking with some of you. I really think that oftentimes when when we find ourselves at the end of what we understand and we're just like, oh, I I just think that's when God's able to do his best work. When we're past the point of trusting ourselves and our own brilliant minds, um, I think that that's when God's able to come in and do something really beautiful. I think about all the stories in this room, anyone anyone in here end up with a life that looked different than they were expecting. But isn't it amazing how God is not um, scared by that chaos? He's still able to to do um, something beautiful, do doing His best work when we feel like we don't know um, what's going on. My. The slide. Maybe this is what I want you to really understand: is this we're not the ones who are able to tame the chaos. Instead, we come to trust the one who treats the chaos as his plaything. Um, but we. But it's so easy. We can spend so much time being Job, or being Job's friends, ah, the brilliant ones who understand all of the mysteries of the world. Um, whereas I think God is just calling us to a really simple trust in Him, and trusting Him in the things that we don't understand and just finding, finding peace in that place. Um, and the whole idea, thats the whole deal with the Christian faith is learning to invite him into the cracks and the crevices of your own heart. I wonder if you'd even be able to look in your own heart and your own life. That I think there's a lot of people that have wounds in there that they don't even know how to name right now. They don't even know, don't even know what that is. I'm not even ready to look at it, to be honest. I just want, I just want it to go away. Um, And I just think that God is the great surgeon of the heart. You know what I mean? He's able to come in and fix... You don't have to understand everything that's going on in your heart in order for God to heal your heart. That he can come in and heal those things that are broken. um, Even when you're just saying, like, I I just don't know. And that's, that's why pretending is so horrible in the body of Christ. Is that people would come into a room like this and they would never be able to admit that there's brokenness. Never be able to admit that there's things that they're scared of or confused by, or devastated by, but if we can come together, there's just beauty in um, finding Jesus together in a really open and honest way. Because again, he's not—he's uh, not afraid of the things that we're afraid of. In fact, the psalmist says it like this: when he talks to God, he says this. Even the darkness is light to you. Even the darkness is light to you. So God's not afraid of the dark, and God's not afraid of the things that live. Um, in the dark. And maybe what I want you to know is this. In your journey, wherever you're at, just know this that God's not coming to crush you. And you're not the monster. Forgive the church for all the times we've made you out to be the monster instead of the enemy being the monster. Um, I need to close here. I just want to say this, that there's a day coming, the Bible's really clear, there's a day coming when there is no more sea, no more chaos, no more pain. Um, but today is not that day. In the meantime, we just have to find a way to make peace with the fact that we can't take the chaos out, that we live here for now. And I, ju- I just have a way, this this is just me, but I just feel I just feel like people who go through unfair suffering in this world, I just feel like God makes up for it on the other side. I just feel like there's 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 not a time when someone goes through something that God doesn't make up for it. And to me that just means a lot. Because I understand that there's pain here and things that I don't understand here, but that doesn't defeat me. Because I know that he's I know that he's still watching. And he's 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 helping me walk through this life with dignity and we're walking towards some place that's a lot more beautiful and we just know that even though it's stormy it's not always going to be this stormy Um, and maybe for some of you you feel like I don't even know I don't even know how to invite God into the dark places in my life I don't even know how that works I don't know any of that let me just say this I feel you I've, I've been there too my, my prayer is that God would somehow bring you to a place where you can communicate something like this to God. Like, God, I don't know how to handle all of this, but you do. And so I'm just going to trust you. I'm just going to trust you to bring light into those chaotic places. And then get rid of the really silly idea that God only works when you have the right thing to say or the right thing to pray. That's silly. But God is always at work. God is always doing something beautiful, even when you don't have the right thing to pray. He's not some, he's not some indifferent force to be harnessed. No, he's a loving father who fights for his kids. Let's so just trust him. Trust that he's always at work, even when you can't see it. Now, I, I don't know where Pastor Marshall is going to go with the rest of the series, but we have communicated enough to where he wants you to know these two things. One is this, you're never going to understand everything. And number two is this, but you never have to doubt that God's really good. Those are the two big ideas. Um, So here's my last slide. It's what I want you to go home thinking about. This is my last statement. And it's this, while the world can be cruel, God is never cruel. While the world can be cruel, God is never cruel. While the world can bring nightmares, um, God's not behind the nightmares. And the world can seem so chaotic and scary. Um, but just know this, that if you open your heart to God, he will help you walk through it. And whatever you're going through, I've, I haven't been in the ministry a long time, but I have been long enough to know this, that everybody's going through something. Both you and the person next to you, who's smiling. Both going through something. Um, and if you let God into those spaces, he's going to help you.